Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Ross Orpit, and I'm Matt Mendez. Ross, how many toxicologists do you think live in Denver? Who? Uh, how many geese fly to Texas every year? That's the worst joke I've ever heard in my life. Uh, who did you Who did you bring on today? Today we have yet another amazing toxicologist from the city of Denver. My name is John Ray Gu. John is an emergency medicine attending at Denver Health, and he is currently finishing up his toxicology fellowship at the Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Center. He is one of the smartest physicians I've ever had the pleasure of talking to and learning from. John, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Ross. Yeah, thanks for having me. Today's episode is a topic that I don't really feel like gets talked about all that often anymore, but is still super important to know about because it's not a common medication, but people still do take it. Yeah, Matt, we're going to be talking about digoxin toxicity, and I think it's largely fell out of our classroom teachings because, like you said, it's not a commonly prescribed medication anymore, but people still are on it, so let's talk about it. So I guess first question we're going to have is, do people still use digoxin? Is, th- is this still a thing? Are people being prescribed this? Is it is it really important for us to recognize this in the pre-hospital setting anymore? So yes, digoxin is still a thing, but you're right. It's definitely used less than it has been in the past, but it still comes up every now and again from a toxicology perspective, and it's important to recognize. It's still the subject of cardiology studies as well, too. In fact, in 2020, JAMA published an article looking at digoxin versus bisoprolol for rate control. So it's still a drug that is actively being investigated and may become popular again. And yes, without a doubt, it's definitely important to recognize in the pre-hospital setting. Knowing the patient overdose on digoxin, takes digoxin chronically, and noting distinct vital sign derangements that are seen with digoxin allows us in the ED to go down the appropriate treatment pathway and has critical information to treat the patient promptly and correctly. So we can't just forget about this poisoning, Ross. No. Damn. All right, so when should we think about digoxin toxicity? So there's a triad I think about with acute ingestions of digoxin. The triad includes nausea and vomiting, bradycardia, and hyperkalemia. In the pre-hospital setting, you can definitely see the bradycardia and nausea and vomiting. However, these signs and symptoms can be seen with other clinical diagnoses as well. To me, when I see these features, didoxin toxicities enters my differential, but there are definitely items on my differential that are much higher and non-toxicology related, like inferior MI, for instance. An EKG might also be helpful to piece the puzzle together. With didoxin toxicity, you can see bradycardia, varying degrees of block, PACs, PVCs, slow AFib. We often talk about bidirectional ventricular tachycardia being pathognomonic for digoxin toxicity, but it does not occur that frequently with digoxin, and you're much more likely to see the other EKG changes we've mentioned. But in all fairness, you see any dysrhythmia with digoxin toxicity. It ranges from Brady dysrhythmias to ventricular dysrhythmias. The one dysrhythmia you will not see is atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, so you can at least cross that out. Overall, I think the important thing to know is that digoxin causes, for the most part, bradycardia, and when you see this vital sign derangement, to start working through the tox differential for bradycardia, as well as the non-tox causes. An even harder situation is chronic digoxin toxicity. All right, first things first. What is bidirectional ventricular tachycardia? Yeah, so this is an extremely odd-looking EKG, and I would 
encourage you out there to just Google it on your phone. Just Google bidirectional ventricular tachycardia. But like John said, this is pathognomonic for digoxin toxicity. So in the rare instance where you might see this abnormality on the EKG, you know this is due to a digoxin overdose. What you're going to see is a ventricular looking tachycardia, so a wide QRS, but every other QRS is going to be going in the opposite direction. So you'll have an up QRS, a down QRS, an up QRS, a down QRS with wide tachycardia. But it's not torsades. It's not torsades because torsades slowly switches directions as it goes through. This alternates the QRS. Gotcha. All right. So back to the poisoning. So in acute ingestions, think of the triad of bradycardia, nausea, vomiting, and hyperkalemia. But symptomatic bradycardia might cause someone to feel nauseous. So don't forget your more common causes of bradycardia like an inferior MI or just hyperkalemia from renal failure. Digoxin can cause almost any dysrhythmia, but one you won't see is AFib with RVR. So if that is present, if you're seeing that fast heart heart rate with AFib, think about something else. Specifically, bradydysrhythmias are really if you see any sort of change or abnormality in a patient who is on DIG, you got to think about this toxicity. Yeah, that's correct. I think if you see bradycardia with any type of uh, block or irritability on the EKG, digoxin should definitely come to your head. So you talked about chronic DIG toxicity being a little more challenging. So what, what are the differences between acute and chronic presentations? Again, bradycardia is going to be the big clue here, and you may have similar EKG findings like we discussed for acute. Chronic digoxin toxicity may have a component of GI symptoms, but not to the degree that you see with acute digoxin toxicity. Another significant component you can see with chronic toxicity is the CNS manifestations. So this can range from subtle findings like mild confusion to frank delirium, and they may endorse visual disturbances, particularly changes in color vision and yellow halos around light known as anthopsia. Whereas, like we've already mentioned, the acute digoxin toxicity that is clinically significant will be defined by bradycardia, nausea and vomiting, and hyperkalemia. If there is not any nausea and vomiting within the first six hours of acute ingestion, then it's likely not a significant digoxin exposure. So that's a good point to repeat. Chronic ingestions may predominantly have more CNS symptoms and less GI symptoms. Whereas in an acute ingestion, you're going to see significant GI symptoms. In fact, if there are no GI symptoms in the first six hours, it is unlikely to be a clinically significant acute ingestion. Interesting. So the GI symptoms that we most often see, is that is that normally just the nausea and vomiting? Or are there any other physical manifestations we would expect? Yeah, I would say they might have like vague GI complaints, but this is really kind of like grandpa hasn't been acting all himself for the past week to like frank like delirium. And so sometimes the CNS manifestations will predominate over the GI symptoms. Uh, and that's kind of more so with the uh, chronic digoxin toxicity as opposed to the acute. Okay. And how common are the color vision changes, like the yellow halos? You it's not that common. We ask all the time. And I would say maybe <laughs> like a handful of patients ever reported that, but it is well described, but it's not something that you, if it's not there, then therefore it cannot be chronic digitoxicity. How does uh, DIG even cause toxicity? Oh, dude, I'm glad you asked this question. So this is one of my favorite pathophysiologic pathways to discuss because it involves one of the most fascinating enzymes in human cellular physiology, the sodium-potassium ATPase, also known as the sodium-potassium pump. This pump is fascinating, at least to me and other toxinators out there, since it sits in your phospholipid bilayer membrane of your cell and orchestrates the movement of sodium and potassium ions across the membrane to maintain the resting membrane potential of the cell. 
You can think of this as the amount of volts or charge your cell has compared to space outside of the cell. This is particularly important for myocytes. If this pump did not do what it does, there would be complete cellular chaos and bad things would happen. So didoxin at therapeutic dosing strikes a balance with the inhibition of this enzyme and results in some of the clinical effects that are beneficial for certain disease states like AFib and heart failure. First, the inotropic, so the increased squeeze of the myocardium, benefits come from an increased concentration of calcium in the cell as a downstream result of the inhibition of the sodium potassium pump. So calcium is an important messenger for cardiac contractility. And the more calcium that is available, the better the contraction of the myocyte. So second, the amount of vagal tone is increased due to digoxin tr uh, tricking your aortic arch and carotid body uh, baroreceptors and increasing the amount of vagal stimulation to your AV node. So this results in slowing of the heart rate and slowing of conduction through the AV node. As you can imagine, these effects are helpful in disease states like heart failure, where you need more squeeze, and in atrial fibrillation, where you need rate control. However, in toxicity, these effects, particularly the increased uh, vagal tone component, can lead to bradycardia in varying degrees of block. Another important consideration of the toxicity is the increased irritability of the heart, which can lead to ectopy and malignant dysrhythmias. As we mentioned already, the amount of calcium in the cell increases. This is a positively charged atom, and as a result of this increased amount of positively charged atoms, the resting membrane potential of the myocyte becomes more positive. So what this ultimately means is that it takes less to trigger depolarization of the cardiac cell, and essentially myocytes begin to fire spontaneously here and there, uh, i.e. the ectopy you would see on the EKG, and can lead to bradydysrhythmias and tachydysrhythmias. So what it all boils down to is that the heart is irritable and there are degrees of block. That was a lot, but super important for understanding this. So let's just break that down real quick into the simple main points. Digoxin works by inhibiting the sodium potassium ATPase pump. And the downstream effects of this increase calcium, which is good because it helps the heart beat stronger and harder. However, this increased calcium will alter the resting membrane potential, making the heart susceptible to tachyarrhythmias and ectopy. At the same time, digoxin increases vagal tone, which can help slow the heart rate, which can also be helpful in disease states like heart failure. However, this is responsible in toxicity for the bradydysrhythmias and the AV blocks we may see. Okay, so that's how it causes toxicity. How are we gonna treat this? What are the mainstays of treatment with regards to digoxin toxicity? Yeah, so when we think of ditch toxicity, there's, there's an antidote out there that we use called digifab. Digifab is a fragment of an antibody specific to the digoxin molecule. So when you administer this, it pretty much reverses the toxicity rather quickly. So it's indicated for any life-threatening dysrhythmia, so VT, VF, second or third degree block, or any kind of progressive bradydysrhythmia. Potassium concentration greater than five in acute poisoning, and then ditch concentrations greater than 15 nanograms per ml at any time or greater than 10 six hours post-ingestion. And then sometimes if someone reports um, ingesting a certain amount, so for adults, uh, an ingesting greater than 10 milligrams or PEDS, four milligrams of digoxin, then it would be indicated. There are equations out there where you can calculate the specific amount of vials of digifab to give based off the concentration of dig and the weight of the patient. But generally speaking, there's an empiric treatment that you can give without doing any math, and that's usually 10 to 20 vials for adults um, and pediatrics. And for empiric chronic toxicity, adults are given three to six vials and children one to two vials. So digifab is the antidote for digoxin overdose. Does every hospital carry this? Do we have to worry about which hospital we're going to? I would say essentially most, if not all, emergency departments are going to have digifab or hospitals for that matter. It's one of those antidotes that are considered like a critical medication. 
And how quickly do we expect to see the effects or the reversal when we administer Digifab? It's pretty rapid. You're going to see effects within 30 minutes. So we don't have Digifab on the ambulance. What can we do in the pre-hospital setting for these patients? Yeah, that'd be pretty great if you guys did. But <laughs> uh, yeah, and so you guys get to do kind of some fun stuff, uh, which may or may not be effective. So it might be a little scary as well, too. So essentially, your options include atropine, epi, and pacing. And like I said, depending on the severity and the chronicity of the toxicity, the patient may not be very responsive to these interventions. But my go-to medications would definitely be atropine, epi, and then if you have to do a procedure, it would definitely be transcutaneous pacing. You may have some difficulty with capture or they're kind of responsive to these medications, but those are the kind of three that I keep in my mind when uh, treating somebody in the pre-hospital setting. So essentially our Brady dysrhythmia protocols yep, and algorithms. Exactly. What about fluid in these patients? I feel like a lot of times patients are on these medications because they have cardiac dysfunction. Is that going to be harmful, helpful, or? Yeah, I probably wouldn't just hit them real hard with boluses. I'd probably see if you can assess their volume status. And if they have that heart failure history, maybe kind of do like 250 cc and see what their response is. And honestly, these patients don't tend to be hypotensive unless, of course, you know, they're in such bad VTAC, VFib, whatever, where they really kind of lose their cardiac output. And so I Hypotension doesn't tend to be a problem with these patients, but if I had to give fluids, it's probably going to be like a gentle fluid resuscitation and reassess to see if they need more fluids. So you mentioned pediatrics, and obviously peds are probably going to become toxic at much lower doses. Are there any other special considerations when it comes to our pediatric patients? No special considerations. You're going to give them the same exact doses. The one time where you may have to do something different is you may have to concentrate the digifab because the amount of volume you're going to be giving to the patient might be a lot and they may get volume overloaded. But in terms of the amount of vials, it remains the same. You may just need to concentrate it. Digoxin is a what we call a known cardiac glycoside. But I believe there are a bunch of other things that contain this cardiac glycoside. Can you can you talk about some of these other things that we might encounter that will cause a digoxin-like overdose? Of course. So this is why I like toxicology. You find cardiac glycosides in plants, frogs, and fireflies. So it's definitely out there, not just in the joxin. I think from a plant perspective, yellow oleander is probably the most available of the cardiac glycoside containing plants in the U.S. I actually had some of this growing in my backyard in Arizona, and it's a pretty common plant to see elsewhere. Another important thing to consider is that the internet has made the world much smaller, and plants and seeds from Southeast Asia and India can rapidly show up at your door. One particular type of seed known as the pong pong seed comes from the tree known as the pong tree, which is also referred to as a suicide tree. So as the name implies, it's frequently used uh, as an agent for self-harm attempts in regions where this tree grows. So thanks to the internet, these seeds can be purchased and cases of toxicity related to this plant are now being reported in Western countries. And we actually had one at our local hospital maybe a couple years ago. So Ross, in the absence of a known digoxin medication exposure, what should prompt us to think about one of these weird and random cardiac glycosides? Yeah, it's really tough. This diagnosis is really hard to make unless it's kind of on your differential or you have a history. But the things that would clue me in is a vomiting patient with bradycardia or any of those EKG things that we talked about. So ectopy and or heart block, those things would really get my attention. The things that would very obviously get my attention would be bidirectional ventricular tachycardia, slow AFib, and then lots of ectopy with varying degrees of heart block. When labs are available, the presence of hyperkalemia will also suggest this diagnosis. Sounds like an extremely tough diagnosis to make, especially since you have somebody who's bradycardic with a heart block. That's 
I mean, that's likely going to make any of us exactly. vomit and feel nauseous. Right, exactly. And then you get a K and it's like seven. You're like, well, this must just be hyperkalemia because your kidneys don't work. So it's definitely right. a hard diagnosis to make. Yeah. Okay. So you got to have kind of what we talk, refer to as a high index of suspicion oh, yeah. when evaluating these mm -hmm. patients. And really that's a, a plug to, you know, look around the house, look at the date of things within the house, talk to bystanders, talk to family members about what's going on as they may give you some clues towards this as well. That's so true, Ross. I don't know if we highlight this enough. Your observations on scene are invaluable to us. The more you can find out about the situation surrounding the events leading up to the 911 call, the more you can help us solve the puzzle of what is going on with the patient. So are there any other special considerations for the pre-hospital provider? Or if you were to say to us, the most important thing to remember, if you remember nothing else, what is this? As ED providers, we gain so much information from what the paramedics see on scene, particularly when it comes to medications. So if you are able to take a look around and find the patient takes the joxin, or find any empty bottle of DIG, this can lead us all of us down the right diagnostic pathway and treat the toxicity promptly. DIG is not used as frequently as other cardiovascular medications. So the total number of exposures are quite low compared to, for example, beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. However, if you keep the key findings associated with this toxicity in the back of your brain somewhere, you can recognize the constellation of symptoms that go with this exposure and can definitely have an impact on the recognition and treatment of this toxicity. So I'd say take home point number one is consider this diagnosis when the patient's bradycardic, there's vomiting, there's ectopy, and heart blocker present. If there is no emesis after an acute exposure, it's probably not a clinically significant dig exposure, and it's very unlikely that toxicity is going to occur. Take home point number two, so for those requiring treatment, like uh, think atropine, epinephrine, transcutaneous pacing. And depending on the type of toxicity, the responsiveness of the treatment may not be as effective as you want it to be. And digifab is the antidote. And then the last point, take home point three, dig is not the only cardiac glycoside out there. Some plants contain cardiac glycosides and can cause toxicity similar to what you would see with an acute dig poisoning. The management is essentially identical.